We're talking today in our study in the book of James. James is introducing this idea of temptation. He's talking about where temptation comes from, what the process is that temptation takes, and also the solution. What do you do about temptation? And as I was thinking about how I was going to get into this this morning, the, the idea of marketing came into my mind. The idea of way, the ways that things are marketed to us um, through, through temptation, right? This idea like, you must have this. This will satisfy your sweet tooth, right? We see a lot of desserts are marketed to us that way and this kind of temptation, they make it look super delicious and this is the thing that you must have. Um, I've got a picture that I wanna show you of a, of a marketing example about temptation. This is an actual product called Temptations. They're cat treats. And, and this is, it says cats can't resist it, right? This is the idea of temptation is that this will be presented to you and there, you cannot, you're powerless to resist the temptation. And in this case, your cats, not you, hopefully, are, don't eat these, by the way. That's just to be clear. This is for the cats. Um, but here's an example, right? The cats could not resist it. They had to get in there and eat these chicken-flavored treats that help control tartar. And... Uh, there you go. So there's an example of temptation being used in marketing. But as we're thinking about this idea of temptation, it's, this is a very relevant, very common experience that we have as humans, is that we face temptations. There will be things presented to us in this world that, that promise all kinds of things to us. And they, they say even like, you can't resist this. And there's times we face temptation and it is constant. And so we need to be thinking about this. How do you face temptation successfully? How do you face temptation victoriously? What do you do when you are presented with temptations? We have constant temptations, right? There's a temptation to lie, right? When you have, it would be much more convenient for the situation you found yourself in. If you just tell a little lie, you could get yourself out of this, out of this trouble that you might be in. Something that wasn't completed at work that you're responsible for. And you could say, well, I didn't know about it when you did know about it, right? A little lie, there's a temptation to tell a lie. There's a temptation to visit those websites on your phone or your computer, right? This offers this kind of fulfillment, this temporary satisfaction, this temptation that's presented to us. Temptation to eat too much, right? The, to, to overindulge with alcohol or to pass on that, that juicy piece of gossip that you heard. Like, I, I heard this thing and I've got to tell other people. Or to respond in an angry way to annoyance, right? We've got our, our kids do something that upset us and we respond, unleash the anger upon them, right? There's that constant temptation. Temptation to be prideful. Temptation to give that person a piece of your mind. You know, you know, it would make you feel better in that moment if this person who's annoying you really heard what you thought of them, right? That's a temptation. Uh, the temptation to be lazy. You have things you need to do, but I'm just tempted to just seek comfort over accomplishing these things that I know I'm supposed to do. Or the opposite, temptation to overwork and to give up time that is your family's or whatever for the sake of doing some other task or some work that you have. Right? Temptation is common. It is universal. And we need to be thoughtful about this. How can we face our temptations in a victorious manner? And we're going to look at three pieces of the puzzle for us today. We're going to talk about the source of temptation, the steps of temptation, and the solution to temptation. And if you really like these, you know, all same word titles that we broke the sermon down into, it didn't come from my mind. I borrowed it. I'll be honest about that. Didn't plagiarize any of the rest of the sermon, but that part. I like the, the outline I borrowed from a commentary that I was going through. So I hope that doesn't make you lose respect for me. But, you know, I didn't come up with my own 
great outline. The source, the steps, and the solution. Now, this is a part of our summer book study, Practical Faith, the book of James. We're going through this book of the Bible that's incredibly practical. Some people call it the Proverbs of the New Testament. Um, It's full of deep wisdom, full of practical application to our life. And it's all about how faith, what faith should look like. We, we have, faith is not just an abstract idea or a set of beliefs that we hold in our mind, but it's something that we live out. Our faith has practical application. Our faith is a practical thing in our lives, and it's meant to be lived out. It's all about faith in action, moving from not just belief, but also belief in action. We've been talking through the course of this series so far about what do we do in the course of trials? This is our third week of the study, I think we'll be in the book of James for 15 weeks. It'll be through the whole summer, and we're taking kind of a slow walk through the book of James, looking at a few verses at a time. And the context of what we're about to read is what we've covered these last two weeks, this idea that we can be joyful when we face trials, not because we enjoy tough times, but because we know that God has good plans even with our difficult times, and that God can use our difficulties to build us up, to strengthen us, to help us to trust him more, and that steadfastness will produce good things in our life. And so we, we can do what he says, which is to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. God has good plans even for this. God wants to mature us. And then last week we were told that we can ask for wisdom, that if we have trouble seeing our lives in this way, that trials can actually produce good things and we can be joyful in trials. If we have trouble seeing things that way, we might need more wisdom. And there's this incredible promise that we talked about in the previous verses, that if you, ask, if you lack wisdom, you just need to ask for some wisdom from God. And God loves answering that prayer. God gives us wisdom, and he will grow our faith and prepare us for uh, this life and also prepare us for eternity. So with that in mind now, we're going to jump into verses 12 through 18 and read this morning's text. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Okay, we'll stop right there. I was, had trouble turning the page of my Bible. I'm like, is there more? No, that's it. Let's stop right there. So, the very beginning of this passage, verse 12, it, you know, we've talked about how James is the half-brother of Jesus, and he offers a teaching very similar to Jesus' Beatitudes teaching here. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, it starts out with this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. James offers this phrase in verse 12, this statement that sounds a lot like Jesus' Beatitude teachings. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. And then he goes from this into talking about temptation, which is, we've already been mentioning that this morning. How do you, what is temptation? Where does it come from? The source of temptation. Now, when we're, we talk often about this 
at Life Roads that we have three enemies of our soul, that our enemies of our faith, the enemies that want to um, draw us away from Jesus are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world is, right, this whole system of beliefs, behaviors, thoughts, values that are opposed to God. It's the power structures. It's all these things, not necessarily the people caught up in the web of the world, but the beliefs where God is opposed, where God is not included. It's all of these belief systems, all of these ways of thinking about the world and values and what matters most and all this stuff. That's the world. Then we've got the flesh, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And then the devil. And the devil makes sense to us. We understand that. It's this evil, an actual person. Evil person, like not a person in the same way we were people, but a fallen angel, right? Who led a rebellion against God and was cast down. And he's the deceiver. He's the enemy of our souls. And he seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And his goals for every one of us are to draw us away from the truth and to lie to us constantly and to make us think things that aren't true and, and to destroy us if possible. He's a liar and he has evil intentions for us. But then this third enemy of our soul is something that we have, we carry with us. It's the Bible calls it the flesh. And we don't actually even need the world or the devil to cause us to sin. We have everything we need already. Um, we, We have this part of us that even though we've been given this new life, if you're a follower of Jesus, the Bible says that that. God has taken away the heart of stone. In the book of Ezekiel, it uses this image of this heart of stone being taken out of us and a heart of flesh being given to us. That we have this new heart, that God's placed this new desire and this new, um, his Holy Spirit within us that wants to follow him and wants to serve him and we're no longer slaves to sin. Romans 7, we've been set free. Romans 8, been set free from slavery to sin, but we still have this desire that we battle that scripture calls the flesh. It's this old, old man versus the new man where even if the sin factory has been shut down, there's a great pastor named Tony Evans who uses this illustration of, you know, if General Motors stopped producing cars tomorrow and, and would, would cars cease to exist? No, they would not. There's a lot of them out there driving. There's, there's all the car parts that are circulating and there's the factory still there just because it's shut down doesn't mean it's not producing car or, or not uh, that cars cease to exist, right? So just because our sin factory has shut down does not mean that our ability to sin or the effects of sin or even years of sinning before coming to Christ don't have some kind of effect upon us. We have this battle with the flesh. We can voluntarily submit ourselves as slaves to sin even though we've been set free. So there's this battle between the new life and the old life. And Romans 6 through 8 talk about that a lot if you want to read more about that. And we have this process in our lives that Jesus is taking us through, this maturing process that we, the theological term is sanctification. We've been justified. We've been set right, made right before God because of Jesus Christ. But then this process, sanctification, we are growing, we're maturing, we're submitting more, giving over more and more of our lives to Jesus and allowing him access to all the different parts of our heart and all the different parts of our values and all of these things that we, we are giving our lives, giving over more and more of our lives to Jesus and battling between the spirit and the flesh. There's an old uh, movie trope that I've mentioned several times, but it's in, in uh, the, the horror movie, the moment where the person discovers that the call is coming from inside the house, right? It's like, 
This is the, this is, this happens in the movies constantly where person's on the phone with someone who's trying to help them and they're like, I'm getting these threatening calls and there's someone who says they're, you know, going to attack me or whatever. And, and they're like, I have bad news for you. The call is coming from inside the house. You know, the operator says we've traced the call and it's coming from in the same location. And it's been in so many movies and so many TV shows, but it's this moment of like, oh no, what do I, what do I do now? And with this flesh issue, like this temptation, the call is coming from inside the house. Right, this is actually something within us as well that we need to battle against. And we don't even need these other enemies of our soul to lead us to disobey God. We have desires that are at war within us. And James is talking about that. The source of temptation is not just an out there thing, it's an in here thing. And this presents a real problem Right For those of us who, who love these sayings that we've just received and taken as, as truth, and here's a couple of examples, follow your heart or be true to yourself. We, the, these are statements we receive from the world and, and we hear them so often we go like, yeah, that, absolutely, follow your heart, be true to yourself. But the question we should ask as followers of Christ is like, well, are we talking about the new heart within me? Because that's better advice if you're talking about that. God's given you a new heart. And so following your heart might be better advice in that situation, but sometimes our hearts can lead you astray. This is the flesh we, that we're battling against, right? Or, or be true to yourself. I would say, which self? That's a fine saying if we're talking about the new self that Jesus has, has made, made us new and is renewing our hearts, then that, that means something different than sometimes people use those phrases to justify all kinds of behaviors where they're led away and they cause harm and hurt people around them because they're following their heart or they're being true to themselves. The reality is that within us is, is everything that we, we need, so to speak, to lead us away from God. We have this battle between the flesh and the spirit. And it's an uncomfortable truth. We, we don't, this is not widely adored an idea that our culture really accepts that that no, people are generally good. People don't have this kind of fallen nature and, and the Christian truth is that we do and we battle against it. Theodore Roosevelt said, if you could kick the person in the pants responsible for most of your trouble, you wouldn't sit for a month. <laughs> There's actually some good news in this though. We've been talking about the bad news here, but the good news is that even if I'm, if I'm responsible for a lot of my problems, that means I can do something about them. I, I'm not just a victim to all these forces outside of my control that I have no power to do anything about. I've been trying to help people in, lives, in their lives and, and uh, help people struggling with addictions and, and different things in their lives for, for a long time. And often you will come across someone that you're trying to help that feels that they're, they're just completely powerless. There's nothing they can do. Every problem in their life is because they're a victim to some force outside their control. And with those kinds of people, it's really hard to help them. It, you go, well, I, I would do this, but I can't get this because of this. And, and, and there's all this long list of excuses of ways that they just cannot help themselves. And that's really challenging, right? But if you have some ability to change your situation or, or as followers of Christ to allow Christ to transform us from the inside out and to give over more and more, more, and more of our lives to him, that's, you have some power to make a difference now. You can actually be changed. Your situation in life can be different. It doesn't have to stay the way it is. So we talked about the source of temptation and, and I, I think 
all of these things, the world, the flesh, and the devil can be, can be sources, but James' focus is on our flesh. We'll talk about, before we get to what we do about it, the solution to it, the, the, the good news portion of the message, which I promise we'll get to, um, is we're going to talk about the steps of temptation for a few moments. We need to understand the course, the life cycle, the process that temptation takes in our lives. And James says, each person is tempted when they're lured and enticed by their own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Let's talk for a moment about the difference between temptations and trials or testing, because there's three words, really, these, um, these words that have been used so far in the book of James. Temptation, trial, testing. Temptation is a enticement to sin. It's all about you falling. A trial or a testing is all about you standing. It's all about proving that you have true, genuine faith that, can, that builds up into endurance and allows you to serve Christ effectively. But temptation is all about you falling. Temptations are designed to wreck your faith or to wreck your life. Alexander McLaren, who was a great Scottish minister from a previous generation, he says the, the, this word temptation conveys the idea of appealing to the worst part of man with the wish that he may yield and do the wrong. But the latter, trials or testing, means an appeal to the better part of man with the desire that he should stand. Temptation says, do this pleasant thing. Do not be hindered by the fact that it is wrong. Trial or proving says, do this right and noble thing. Do not be hindered by the fact that it is painful. Satan tempts us to bring out the worst in us but God tests us to bring out the best. Temptation by itself is not sin. To have a desire to do the wrong thing is not sin yet. James will talk about that in kind of this life cycle image that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. So just to have a desire to do the wrong thing but not actually following through on that, sometimes people feel guilty about even desiring to do the wrong thing. That's not actually the sin. That's common. Everyone experiences desires to do the wrong thing. James uses two images here that come from our kind of biological world. One is, is a fishing metaphor, right? He's, or a hunting metaphor. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You know, fishing lures, right? Or I, I'm not a great fisherman, so I shouldn't talk about it too much. Otherwise, you'll know that I don't know anything like what I'm talking about here embarrass myself in front of you with my lack of knowledge about fishing, but I'm pretty sure that you hide the hook, right? The hook is not super obvious. It just looks like a delicious worm or whatever you're using there. And this is the idea of the lure. It's like this enticing thing that looks amazing and looks like something that you should, I'm definitely going to have that. That sounds great. How could I resist that? But underneath that is the hook. And then his imagery changes now. And now there's this childbirth imagery. It says, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Warren Wearsby said, we think of sin as a single act, but God sees it as a process. It's not just a, this kind of momentary thing. Like, sin is all about this process that's happening in our lives. It's, the, it's this kind of life cycle, so to speak, of what temptation and sin and eventually death, that's the cycle. That's what, it, that's what Satan wants for us. 
That's what the enemy of our soul wants to produce in our life. That when that process is complete, it leads to death. It leads to all kinds of destruction in your life. And then he starts out talking in the next passage here um, that we read. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, in verse 16. Don't be deceived. Be, be clear on the truth. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. And, and it's so important that we remember the deception is a problem and it's a vulnerability that we all have because it's Satan's main weapon against us. Satan is the deceiver. Jesus called him the father of lies. He's all about lying. He's all about misleading. And Satan is, is a liar. His main weapon is deception. We were up at camp this last week, as I mentioned, and we had one day there was a luau and, and like we, we had like this kind of Hawaiian party. Everyone had these uh, plastic lays on that they were wearing and we were listening to like surfing USA and Hawaii luau music and playing in the sprinklers. That was one of the activities we did up at camp with the, with the campers. I wore a grass skirt for a short period of time uh, during that luau. Um, but there was a, after the event was done, we were all kind of gathered around a picnic table and there was a box in the middle of the table and it just said lays on it. But the way you spell the word lays is very similar to the word lies. And so Sarissa was, was up there at camp and she goes, every time I look at that box, I see lies. You know, it's, I know it says lays, but it just looks like the word lies. And then we were all joking around about this box of lies. There's a box of lies sitting up on the table here. And this is kind of like what Satan had. I was thinking about this sermon dur during that conversation. Satan's got his box of lies. And he's honed them and crafted them over millennia. And he knows what lies we fall for. And he's presenting them constantly to us. This will make you happy. This will make you feel good with no downside. This will give you the meaning that you're looking for in life. He's constantly unpacking that box of lies and presenting these things about what will fulfill us, what will really make us have joy, all of these kinds of things. And then one of Satan's oldest lies is that God is not good. One of Satan's oldest lies is that God is withholding something good from you and that his rules and his ways of living, his commands are all about God taking joy from you because God ultimately is not good. That's one of Satan's oldest lies and he uses it constantly and it is a battle. And so James calls us to not be deceived. Do not be deceived. And then he'll talk about how amazing God is and that God has good plans and that God gives only good gifts and our temptations don't come from God. He, he will talk about who God is and the character of God so that we can defeat this lie. God is good. God knows that sin brings death and his commands are there to protect you. The boundaries he places around our lives and the way that we should live our lives are for our good. It's for our flourishing. It's not to take something good away from you. It's to protect you from the hook buried in that, in that bait. So scripture tells us to flee temptation. Run from it. That God doesn't send temptation. He will allow us to be tempted. But God does not send those temptations and he provides the escape route every time, scripture says. You've not been tempted by some extraordinary temptation that other humans haven't endured before you that every time you're presented with a temptation, God will provide a way of escape and we're told to flee from temptation. James will say later, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And that when temptation presents itself, we are not to just to, to buy into that lie over and over again that yeah, this probably is the best thing for me in this situation. No, no. 
He says, don't blame God for your temptations. God only sends good things. So now let's talk about the solution to temptation. In the beginning of the passage in in verse 13 that we read, he says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. When something bad happens um, in our lives, we look for someone to blame. We go like, how do we prevent this next time? Like who, who did that? Who caused this? Right? This problem happened um, or a tragedy happened. We go, who can we look to, to blame for this so that we can punish them, prevent this thing from happening in the future, whatever the case may be? And James says, some people will blame God when they're tempted. God, why did you send this temptation my way? You know I'm not strong enough to handle these temptations. Like, God, why did you put me in this vulnerable situation? He says, God does not do that. God does not... He, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, right? Don't blame God. We we look in the mirror, first of all, with those kinds of things, right? And I want to reread verses 16 through 18 before we talk about the solution a little bit more here. It says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be, kind of a, be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God is the giver of all good gifts. Every good thing you have in your life, you have because God gave it to you. We said that last week. God is the giver of every good thing that you have. And several other things are spoken about God in this passage, that he is the father of lights. He is the unchanging father of lights, right? He's the creator of, of the night sky. What is that, that phrase, father of lights, is talking about the lights in the sky. He is the one who spoke those into existence. The beauty of the night sky, being up at camp last week, being far away from city lights and being able to see all those stars in the sky. I had one moment up there just on the, on the sports field at the top of the camp and the moon wasn't up yet and it was just full of stars. And scripture tells us that creation instructs us about who God is, tells us about how amazing he is. And Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. This phrase, father of lights, right? He's the, he's the origin of light, the idea of light and light itself. And the way light makes you feel when you see those stars in the sky and you begin to think about how big the universe is and how small you are, God spoke that into existence. He is the creator of these things. And the scripture says that he is unchanging. It says there is with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The idea here is that, that God, God will never change in how he feels about you, how he thinks about you, who he is. God is completely unchanging. And I take great comfort in that, that God never changes. Um, and the older I get, the more I feel comforted by that, right? That because change is constant. The pace of life changes, the technology changes, the, the, I see my kids growing up. We got that little thing on the door where we've been marking their heights and they're just constantly changing and getting bigger. And it, it change is constantly happening. I've changed. My, my wife has changed. I, you could say my wife has been married to three different men, but they've all been me, just to be clear. Okay, everyone good with that? I've changed a lot over the years. That's part of why we make those covenant vows in marriage is that things are going to change and you can't, you don't know where, where this person's headed or their habits or their, 
personality changes over the years or the things that their, their interests or their, you know, all, we change over the years. Everyone is changing. Change is constant around us. Have you ever showed um, a movie that was like, for those parents in the room, I, I know many of you will identify with this. You had a favorite movie when you were a kid and you were so excited to show your kids your favorite movie. And you put the movie on for them, and you're like, I love this movie when I was a kid. You're going to have the same experience I'm gonna have, I, that I had when I was in the, the way it meant so much to me. It's going to mean the same thing to you. And then you put the movie on, and it does not go like you were hoping. I think we've all, uh, parents can identify with this, right? It's like you, you realize that, that you've changed, right? That the way that movie affected you when you were a kid, that now in this decade, like the pacing of movies are different. You're like, this is slower than I remember the special effects are really bad compared to what's in the movies now. You know, you don't realize how bad the actors were. You watch it as a grown-up, you're like, oh, this is not good acting or good writing. Um, Storyline's very unbelievable, right? You, you know what I'm talking about. You've changed. Filmmaking's changed. And, and so this is why these kind of things happen. But God will never change. He is the constant. He's the one that you can rely on. He's your firm foundation. He's the one who you can place your hopes in and know that he will always be there for you. Scripture says, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. In a world of constant change, God never changes. He is always good. He can't love you more than he loves you now because that would be changing. God is, is constant. And in the words of a great song, he is never going to give you up. He's never going to let you down. And I'll just leave it there. Um, that was for the five of you that caught that reference. Okay. The other thing we're told about God is that this relationship with him is based on grace that James says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be kind of first fruits of his, creation, of his creatures. We're given this new birth imagery here. It says, of his own will, he brought us forth, and kind of a palate cleanser for that other birth imagery that it, he just gave us a couple verses away about sin. Um, he says, we've been brought forth by the word of truth, of his own will, God gave new life to people because he wanted to. Not because we deserved it. Not because we were somehow you know, good enough to earn his favor and that God, we're, we're, we showed God how much we deserved him and that's why he did it. No, no, no. Of his own will, because God wanted to, he gave life through the word of truth. He, and he's still doing it. He's still giving us life. For anyone who has yet to receive him, he gives life to everybody of his own will because he's full of grace, because he's kind. He just loves us. And his work continues, right? He says that we should be kind of a first fruits of his creatures. When James is writing this, the church is brand new. It's this new thing that started, this new movement. And it's just maybe a decade or a couple of decades old at this point when he writes this letter. And he says, we're going to be the first truths, that what God is up to in this world is only just beginning. And that's still true, that we are the first fruits. But where that goes, generational after generation after generation and country after country, it continues, that God's work is continuing and unending in this world. I think part of the solution for us when it comes to temptation 
is understanding who God is and having a big enough view of God and a big enough love of God that these other loves, these other temptations are pushed away, that we resist those temptations because God loves us so much and we love him so much that how could we possibly say yes to these temptations that draw us away? People have all kinds of motivations for resisting temptation. David Guzik, a pastor who wrote a commentary on the Bible, says this in this commentary, some resist temptation because of the fear of man. The thief suddenly becomes honest when he sees a policeman. The man or woman controls their lust because they couldn't bear to be found out and thus embarrassed. Others resist the temptation of one sin because of the power of another sin. The greedy miser gives up partying because he doesn't want to spend the money. But the best motive for resisting temptation is to love him. To love him with greater power and greater passion than your love for the sin. I'll remind you of where this idea comes from in our passage. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test of the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. That there's reward in store for those who love God. There's an old sermon written back in the 1800s by Thomas Chalmers, um, who was a Scottish minister And this has quite a title. Here's the title. The expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive, like getting expelled from school. That's that word expulsive. The expulsive power of a new affection. And in this sermon, which is hard to read, but I encourage you to read it if you're interested in in this. He says there's two ways of stopping something, um, like a behavior you want to change in your life. Um, That behavior, by the way, comes from this sense that you love this thing. Maybe you're doing something, you have this temptation that you're succumbing to over and over again. There's a sense that you love that. And that's why you're doing that. That's why you fall prey to this temptation because there's this, your heart is connected to this in some way. And maybe you wouldn't think of it that way, but there's this sense of connection of, of love. You actually love this in some way. And, and so he says, if you're trying to change that behavior, you, there's two ways of going about that. You could say, hey, this is why you shouldn't love this. Someone could explain to that person, this is not worthy of your love, and here's the 10 reasons. And he says, that doesn't work. Because the heart didn't really like reason its way into loving this thing. So giving reasons why you shouldn't love it. And maybe successfully, you could, you, maybe you could be successful at this and say, I'm going to stop loving this because I've rationalized why this is not something I should love. And then you just have a vacuum in your heart, he says in the sermon. You have this absence of love now. And he says, like nature hates a vacuum, so does our hearts. Our hearts are drawn to something. Our hearts have to have something to love. So he said, the the more effective solution is to have a higher thing that you love. And that when you love that higher thing, these lesser loves are expelled It's the expulsive power of a new affection. There's no room in your heart for these lesser loves because you have this overpowering, huge love, this image of who God is and how loved you are by God. And these lesser loves just don't don't have any room anymore because God has so captured your heart. So we need a greater image of who God is. God, the Father of lights, the giver of good gifts. He is the higher love. And as we understand that, fill our hearts with that kind of love, understand the truth of the good news of Jesus and this transforming power, 
we begin to love him alone. And these temptations become much easier to flee from. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 to 19 is a prayer that Paul's praying for the church at Ephesus. And his, this is part of the prayer. He says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You do not know how loved you are by God. You don't. I don't. You, you, you can't comprehend this without divine assistance from God of how deeply you are loved by God. God loves you with an everlasting, unchanging love. And the more we experience that, the more we understand that, boy, that, is, that will transform the way we interact with temptation. He said, he's praying in this prayer that you might have strength to comprehend with all the saints, that this is like takes all of us together and God's power to help us understand just how giant God's love is for us. We don't understand it and we need to understand it more. And the more we understand it, the more successfully we will face temptation. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need, we need to know how loved we are by you. Temptation offers us things that it cannot deliver on promises things that end up leading, and leading to hurt and death even. And Lord, we want to be people who face sin successfully with your help, with this power of your love that fills us with all the fullness of our understanding of you so that there's not even room anymore for these lesser loves. Help us to love you more. I pray for any in this room who have yet to put their faith in you, who have yet to find you as their personal savior and the one who wants to walk through this life with them. Lord, I pray that you'd help them to understand how, how loved they are, so loved by their creator that you came, you gave your life for them so that they might have life in you. And the scripture tells us, Lord, that we, we accept that by faith. It's a gift. We just say yes to you. We receive that. We can't do anything to transform our hearts. That's all what you do, but we have to open our hearts to you. We have to let you do the work that you want to do. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here today who's yet to receive you, Lord, right now, help them say yes to you. Help them to begin a relationship with you and find this new life that you offer. And, Lord, for all of us, as we consider, Lord, this, this, the danger that temptation presents to us and, and Lord, your plan to, for good for us, May we, may we face the temptations that will be presented in the week ahead or even the rest of today and face them successfully. May we flee from temptation. May, may the love that we have for you and this place of love that you want us to, to live in, may that so fill our hearts up. May that lift our hearts up to this higher place, this higher love, so that these things just lose their appeal to talk bad about somebody or to given to lust or to drink too much or whatever it may be, Lord, we, we offer all of those to you. Fill our hearts with your love. Fill our hearts with your presence. Fill us with your spirit and crowd out these other things that don't belong there. Transform our hearts. Transform our lives. May we be even more fully given over to you. Help us to do battle successfully in the week ahead with these temptations, Lord. We love you. 
We thank you. And Lord, as we turn our hearts once again to you in worship, may you inhabit our praise. Lord, may you, may you help this be these moments where we are inspired to love you more as we lift our voices together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.